Welcome to Gov Innovator. I'm Andy Feldman. Our focus today is how states can design their pre-K programs to provide both the strongest early learning boost and a solid foundation for future learning. We get insights from Greg Duncan, who is part of a group of leading pre-K researchers who sought consensus on what we know about the effects of pre-K. Here's a clip. The challenge is not just to provide that initial charge that will get kids ready for school, but it's to think of how to put in place uh, a series of charging stations, recharging, in kindergarten, first grade, and second grade, and so forth, that will build on the gains from the pre-K year. In 2015, the most recent data, 42 states and the District of Columbia spent $6.2 billion in state funds on pre-kindergarten programs, highlighting the emphasis that policymakers are placing on pre-K to help students prepare for elementary school. Research has shown both the success of pre-K as well as inconclusive evidence about the sustainability of those gains as children become older. The findings raise the question, how can states optimize their pre-K programs to provide both the strongest early learning boost and a solid foundation for future learning? Recently, a group of leading pre-K researchers set out to find consensus about what we know about pre-K education, and last week they presented their findings at the Brookings Institution. To learn more, we're joined by Greg Duncan. He's a distinguished professor at the School of Education at the University of California, Irvine, and was part of the consensus group. Greg, it's good to have you back on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. You've noted that for state policymakers and education officials, there are four important policy questions related to pre-K. The first is whether to have more or fewer slots for pre-K. In other words, should state officials seek to expand pre-K or cut it? What's the research consensus? Sure. Well, here the issue is to what extent are pre-K slots effective and for whom are they effective? And when we did our uh, review, our group, we uh, looked across all the literature that we could, where there were decent quality evaluations of state PK programs. And one of the um, striking results is that pretty much across the board, states have a very wide variety of uh, models for pre-K. But uh, by and large, at the end of pre-K, the kids who went through pre-K were significantly more ready for school uh, in terms of both uh, literacy and math achievement levels. Fewer studies uh, looked at socio-emotional behaviors, but there's no evidence that uh, that they decline when there's this push on the academic side. So by and large, with a variety of models, pre-K programs appear effective, at least in terms of getting kids ready for kindergarten uh, at the end of the pre-K year. So to the extent that policymakers have an option to expand pre-K slots and wonder whether they pay off, Uh, the evidence seems to indicate that they do. The second key policy question relates to regulating classroom quality. Tell us about that. That is uh, not as rosy, I would say. All but one state have QRIS, quality rating and improvement systems, things like uh, whether to require a BA in early child development on the part of teachers, a master's degree, whether to regulate the maximum number of kids per teacher in a classroom, So a variety of kind of structural characteristics. There is also uh, a set of tools that have been developed to rate uh, the quality of the day-to-day activities and interactions that take place in the classrooms. So a lot of states send observers out to have the quality rated along those dimensions. 
And here the evidence is, you know, surprisingly ambiguous. You would think that most of those things are a slam dunk, that if you have a teacher with more credentials, that the kids would learn more. And it's really hard to find consistent evidence that that's the case. Same thing with uh, class size. It's hard to find uh, consistent evidence there. So what states do often is put together these dimensions into a a star rating, uh, one to five stars, depending on quality. And it's very hard to find evidence that kids in a four-star center do better than kids in a three-star center and five-star better than four-star. So in terms of where to put a lot of efforts into trying to improve the quality of early education experience, QRIS and other kind of structural characteristic approaches uh, have yet to be proven. It reminds me, Greg, of the literature for older grades, K-12, where studies have had a challenging time finding variables of classroom quality that make a consistent difference for kids' outcomes. I mean, going all the way back to studies 20 years ago. This is the Hanischek stuff, right? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. This is the pre-K counterpart to that. Interesting. The final key policy issue facing state policymakers is whether or not to prescribe a certain curriculum. What was the consensus there? Uh, Well, in this case, there is a lot of prescription that uh, states engage in, both for Head Start programs as well as pre-K programs. We divide the world of curricula into uh, what are called whole child approaches versus approaches that emphasize instruction in academic kind of areas like numeracy and literacy. So in a whole child approach, the curriculum will describe general learning goals. It will lay out materials uh, in a classroom in a certain way where kids are able to explore those materials. And the idea is for teachers to be trained to uh, recognize when a child is engaged in learning with those materials and to be able to support that child's learning in an optimal kind of way, which is a a kind of a Goldilocks, not too heavy-handed, where you go in and start providing direct instruction to that child and not too light, where you really aren't engaging very much with the child and are foregoing a chance to convert exploration into genuine learning. Some teachers are very good at that. It's the kind of Montessori philosophy, but it is very hard to train teachers to be good at that. There are examples like uh, the creative curriculum is the most popular commercial curriculum. It's in um, a large fraction of Head Start classrooms. It's in a substantial fraction of uh, pre-K classrooms. And there have been very few random assignment uh, evaluations uh, to the extent that there have. They haven't shown kids in a creative curriculum classroom do any better than kids in a classroom where the teachers are making up their own curriculum. So that's the whole child side. Then there's the, the set of curricula that focus on developing math skills, focus on developing literacy skills. And the picture is uh, mixed. Some don't do any better than they're not uh, present in a classroom. But on the math side, there are actually a couple of curricula that have passed muster. Uh, one that I've studied is called Building Blocks, which is a 15 to 20 minute set of supplemental activities every day that are structured in a way that are progressive that are also structured in a way that is very play-based. Four-year-olds learn through play rather than sitting in uh, their desks and doing worksheets, so it's not at all that kind of uh, drill and kill. Kids are having fun. And at the end of the uh, year, in at least the biggest uh, evaluation, 
they are performing at a much higher level. But, you know, it does vary across the sites, but by and large, the average impact uh, is quite positive. And if you put that up against the more than one standard deviation gap in numeracy that exists nationally between kids in low and high income families when they enter kindergarten, right? So you're able to uh, close about half that gap. The gap uh, between middle class kids and low income kids is about a half a standard deviation. So it's, uh, it's closing about that much. That's really interesting. Because the whole child approach today dominates preschool curricula, I think your uh, findings, the findings of the consensus group, are going to be very noteworthy, uh, calling for a rethinking of that uh, and moving towards a you know proven, skilled-focused curricula. We have one more policy lever to go, and that is really about what happens after the pre-K year. Tell us about that. So the evidence shows that, by and large, uh, pre-K programs are successful in boosting kids' school readiness by the end of the, uh, the year. That's the good news. That's the short-run, end-of-the-year kind of gain. But then if you look beyond uh, what happens at, uh, when kids enter kindergarten, first grade, second grade, the evidence here is pretty ambiguous. But the broader evidence from early childhood education is that uh, you often get the kids who didn't have pre-K catching up pretty quickly. So the challenge is not just to provide that initial charge that will get kids ready for school, but it's to think of how to put in place uh, a series of charging stations, recharging, in kindergarten, first grade, and second grade, and so forth, that will build on the gains from the pre-K year. And there's not much evidence that school systems are very good at that, in part because pre-K is often quite distinct from K-12 education. So there the important take-home lesson is we should really try to think of pre-K as another year of education. And the more we integrate it into the early grade structure, co-location, you could think of teachers moving between those kind of classrooms, line up curricula, all sorts of things that we can do to take advantage of the pre-K gains and to build on them. And on that note, Greg, I know from talking with you that you see a critical area for future research as how to better integrate pre-K into elementary education. The report by the Pre-K Task Force is called The Current State of Scientific Knowledge on Pre-Kindergarten Effects, and I'll post a link on the podcast website. Greg Duncan, thanks for not only sharing some of the key findings from that report, but also putting it into policy lever terms that will be directly relevant to decision makers. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure.